The sermon text for this morning is Genesis 6, verses 9 through all of chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its, bre- its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort of animal shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. 
They rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, source of all light, by your word you give light and illumine our soul. Pour out upon us your Holy Spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, this is what we're seeing in this uh, passage leading up to the flood. So the, the leaven of Cain, which we saw maturing in Lamech, is now, has now leavened the entire lump of all humanity. Uh, apart from Noah, who's said to be righteous, blameless, and someone who walks with God, everyone else is, is just a bunch of Cains and Lamechs. They're murderous. They're wicked, they're corrupt. Unless we not understand, not understand what, what this means by corruption, the, the text says specifically it's a violent type of corruption. It's particularly violent. It's, it, it's specifically pointing us back to how murderous Cain and Lamech were. And in last week's passage that Craig preached, God warned that humanity had three generations, 120 years before he would bring a flood of judgment and death upon the world. And it's only because Noah was found righteous that we can have the passage as it is this morning. This morning we will see that because God is covenantally faithful, he keeps the righteous alive. Even in the midst of flooding the entire world, even through bringing judgment of death on everything that he created, there remains a ray of hope. Because God is covenantally faithful, he keeps the righteous alive. And we see this theme play out in, in three movements through the text. First, God promises death and life. Second, the righteous enter the ark. And third, the waters prevail on the earth. So chapter uh, six, uh, verses 13 through 22, give us the first movement. God promises death and life. This section is broken up really into two parts, both beginning with a short promise of destruction and death, and then followed by a vision of hope, a vision of life, instructions on how to build and then fill the ark. Looking first at the promises of destruction and death in verses 13 and 17, I think we're always going to be asking why. Why does God use this method of destruction, the flood? Why is it so tremendous? Why is it a worldwide flood? In these verses, God uses very specific language to describe his judgment on the wicked earth. The, the word that, that 
the, the text uses for destroy, when, when God's talking about destroying the earth, is the same word that the text uses for the corruption of the earth. So in effect, the text is saying God is going to destroy the destroyers. He's going to corrupt those who are, are, are already corrupt, right? The, the idea is that God is only giving the world over to what it's already doing to itself. And it's important to notice that God is covenantally faithful, the same as he has been since Genesis 1. The death that God promised Adam and Eve if they rejected uh, him and took the forbidden fruit is the same death that he's bringing here on everyone. They, they've, they have, like Adam and Eve, have embraced being east of Eden, but even more so, they've embraced it like Cain and Lamech, like we saw, and they've embraced worshiping everyone and anything but the Lord himself. We see that covenant breakers are receiving the covenant curse, which is death. But he's not being only covenantally faithful in the death and the judgment. He is even more being covenantally faithful. It's, it's even more emphasized in the fact that he promises life through the ark. In verses 14 through 16, we see God's promise of life, which comes immediately after he promises to bring death. The first promise of life is found in the specifications of, of the ark. God tells Noah exactly how to form the ark with instructions on the type of wood, how it's structured uh, with rooms and three levels and the precise measurements of how to build it. Then God begins in verse 18 by promising to make a covenant with Noah. Tied to this, he promises that Noah and his family with him will go into the ark to be kept alive. God has made a way to keep them alive even through the judgment of death. This is God revealing his covenant faithful even in regards to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that Riker preached several weeks back. In that promise, God promised that a serpent crusher would come through the seed of the woman and by keeping Noah and his family alive, he is preserving one narrow but an actual avenue to keep that promise alive for a seed of a woman to, uh, to come now through the line of Noah He's maintaining his faithfulness, God is, to his promise in Genesis 3.15 to bring forth that seed. And then in verse, uh, verses 19 through 22, God gives more, more instructions on the ark, this time giving instructions on how to fill the ark. He already told Noah that he and his family would be in there, but God continues and says, hey, all the animals as well, bring them into the ark, one male and one female of each kind. God's showing the promise of life. Uh, especially in verse 20 when it says that they, even the animals, will be kept alive with Noah. It's, it's, and what's interesting about this description and instructions on the ark, or, or for the ark, is, is how Noah was meant to, to load up the ark with himself, his family, and the animals, uh, and, and how that actually follows, how he's supposed to build it and then fill it, is, follows the pattern of creation in the first six days. God made three realms the first three days. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And then he filled the heavens and the earth and the sea with stars and moon and sun and birds and animals and all the fish of the sea. And that's what we see here. These, this ark seems to be a miniature cosmos, a, a miniature world. And, and it's God showing his covenantal faithfulness is shining through here 
and that although he's going to destroy the earth, he's promising a way of preserving it through that destruction. And for us Christians, I think this, this has to well up uh, certain patterns. It has to, to bring in our mind uh, patterns that we're familiar with. We know of a God who's entered into a new covenant with his people. We know of a God who will one day finally and ultimately judge the world. And we know of a God who has promised a way unto life through that coming judgment. Only one way that we may be kept alive through that judgment. As we continue in this passage, we'll see how this flood account prefigures the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves his people from certain destruction. And, and with that, we're gonna move on to chapter seven, and uh, verses one through 16, and that's gonna show us the second movement of this passage, which is the righteous enter the ark. This section focuses on the ark as the place of refuge. It's the place of relief from the judgment that's coming. In verses one through five, God tells Noah what he's supposed to do and summarizes all that God himself is going to bring about. And in verses six through 16, expound on that command for Noah to enter the ark and give two accounts of Noah and his family and the animals entering and then the flood beginning. And because God starts in verse one by proclaiming Noah as a righteous man, it's gonna be important to think on what that means for a moment. I think a lot of us, or a lot of Christians at least, are tempted to read this story of Noah and think he is righteous because he is more morally upright than the corrupt world around him. He is less murderous, or he's, he's uh, you know, nicer or kinder than that world around him. But is this the case? Is this what this text is getting at? Is this why Noah is considered righteous? And the scriptures say, no, it, it, he probably was less murderous and more kind and nice, but that's not why he was righteous. Hebrews 11 says that Noah became an heir of righteousness by faith. This, this is his righteousness, that he believed God. Like Abraham, who's gonna come in Genesis later, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's the same thing that happens with Noah. He believes God. And his faith is shown explicitly in that Noah, uh, in this passage, and four times it actually says that Noah did what God commanded him. Right? His faith is shown in his obedience. Is Noah going to build an ark if he doesn't believe God's actually going to send a flood? No. Is he going to enter the ark if he doesn't believe God is going to preserve his life and his family's life and the animal's life through the flood? No. And secondly, back to that promise in Genesis 3.15, this whole uh, passage is couched in that promise. Noah seemingly is presented as the only person left on earth who believes that promise of God. And so we see Noah propped up as this man who believes God. He trusts God. He has faith in his Lord. And in verses 6 through 10, we get a brief description of Noah and his family obeying God and entering the ark. It starts off by giving a specific timestamp. This flood started in the 600th year of Noah's life. And I think you could read into that number a lot. What I think is, is particularly important about this is that it, the, the text is saying this happened at a real point in a real man's life in real history. This is our actual real world history. This flood happened. This is not just a literary story that, that gives us a theological point. Then it goes on to explain how Noah, again, 
does everything that, that God commanded of him. He and his family and all the animals enter the ark, and after seven days, the, the flood begins, just as God said he would do. And in this paragraph, this short paragraph, we see the main theme highlighted in verse 7, that the ark was to give an escape from the flood. It, it's, the ark is highlighted as the refuge from the coming death, to protect life through the judgment on corruption. And this theme is magnified in verses 11 through 16. Again, starts by giving the exact date, even in more detail this time, uh, of, Noah, uh, of the year of Noah's life and the month and the day. And again, it's to emphasize the veracity that this is real. This is a thing that happened in history. And in the same verse, the flood is described with imagery that's, that's again, important for us to think about. It says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open and you have waters from below and waters from above converging on the earth. This should remind us of, of the beginning of Genesis when before God had separated the waters from above and the waters beneath. When we were talking about the ark previously as a miniature cosmos, a little world, we see that that's an important motif through this passage because it's clear that the flood is meant to be a decreation story. Everything that God saw was good in creation in the beginning, he now sees is completely corrupted and he's undoing it. This is a work of undoing. The ark is the only remnant of creation life that remains. And suggested in this flood account is that the ark is to retain the semblance of what God created in the beginning. It alone will pass through the waters of decreation judgment to carry through the remnant of God's creation. And as Christians, again, we, we ask, what does this mean for me? One of the clearest pictures for us is that there's only one place for anyone to find refuge in the world that's being given over to its own sinfulness. That place, of course, is Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, he's, he takes hold of this uh, flood narrative to say that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He, he says that the, the flood is actually proof of that. So this flood narrative reveals a comfort to us, those who are uh, in Christ by faith. We all know my personal experience that the world is full of the same types of corruption as is uh, um, shown and depicted in this, in this narrative. We know that the world hates Christians. The world despises life. It loves and celebrates death and ostracizes those who celebrate life. We don't live in a world that's all that different from the corruption that prompted this flood. But Peter assures us that we have a refuge in God through Christ. The only question that remains is how do we gain access to the ark? How do we know that we're in the refuge of life? The answer here, at least, is to imitate Noah, is to, to be righteous like Noah is righteous which simply means to have the faith of Noah. We need to be the heirs of righteousness that comes by faith. That alone allows us access to the ark of life. And the invitation is this, get in, jump in. There is a place for you in Christ through faith. Christ alone 
is life in the midst of death. And finally, I think this means for us Christians that we actually have something to offer the world. We alone, the church, have been given full access to faith through Christ, the ark. And of the future judgment that's coming, we have been given more than 120 years of warning. Right? We, we probably have s- several more years to come before the final judgment. Therefore, we must invite the world into the saving ark and refuge of Jesus Christ. We, he alone can provide comfort and rescue. And he alone can comfort the godly during trials. So call the world to faith and offer to the world Christ, who is the ark. And lastly, we look to the third movement of the passage in verses 17 through 24, which is that the waters prevail on the earth. Before the last section we were focusing on the ark as a place of refuge here, the the passage really focuses on the judgment and the death and the corruption uh, of the corrupt that, that comes through God's judgment on them. This section starts by describing the waters rising and covering the earth and, and bearing up the ark. And, the, and as the waters prevail, the ark alone floats safely. That's the only vestige of, of life that remains. And from here, verses 19 through 23 focus on the, the absolute destruction and death that comes through the flood. First, we see that the waters prevailed so mightily that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. There are a couple explanations for why it specifies that high mountains were covered. I think the first one, again, points to the fact that this is a real flood. The, the measurements given most people estimate to be about 22 and a half feet above the high mountains. It, it points to the fact that this is probably not just a, a localized event. You can't have mountains covered 22 feet in one spot in the world. That's going to cover the earth. Uh, or else it's probably not going to just cover a couple of mountains by 22 feet. Second, and I think more theologically important, is that through Scripture, high mountains represent places of meeting with God and worshiping God and having communion with God. And, and often, high places are utilized by pagans to worship false gods and offer false worship. I think the judgment of death here shown is, is reminding us that the death didn't just bring about the death of corrupt people, but it symbolically brought with it the judgment on false worship. The, the flood here is a message for all generations, even to our day, that proclaiming any false religion on any false high mountain to any false god brings only one thing, which is death and destruction. That's the only answer when we worship on false high mountains. And then next in verses 21 through 23, we see the death of the rest of the world. The death of all who didn't walk with God as Noah had done. This is the death of all those who didn't worship God but but worship false gods at the high places. Everything, it says, that has the breath of life was wiped out. In fact, it says they were blotted out. The birds, livestock, beasts, the swarming creatures, all mankind... Again, this imagery reminds us of creation and the totality of death. Everything that was made, everything that was given life in the beginning had now been dealt death. All except the one vestige of life that remained, which is the ark of life. At the end of verse 23, we see that Noah was left and all who were with him 
as the ark passes through the waters of judgment, eventually landing, and Noah and his family disembark to start afresh, that we'll see in the, the coming chapters, they, they, they disembark to start afresh in a renewed earth. It's crucial to understand that it's only because of Noah that this was possible. It says that Noah and all those who were with him were saved. God saved the one righteous man and all who were his. The righteous one and his family were those who were kept alive through the flood. This picture should strike us because we are in the same position. Except in this passage, we're not supposed to imitate Noah. We are not Noah here in this section. We're the people with Noah in this section. Previously, Noah stood as the exemplar of faith, the faith that we, we are supposed to imitate. We're supposed to believe God like Noah believed God. Yet here, Noah represents the man of righteousness who saves the people who are with him, and that's Jesus Christ. The end of corruption through deadly waters has future implications for us. Again, 2 Peter is really helpful because when he says this, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heaven and earth were stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says someday there will come a judgment far greater than even the judgment of the flood on the earth. There's going to become a, a fire, a, a judgment of fire that is coming. It will cast away the old order, the old heavens and the old earth, and bring final destruction on all the ungodly, all the corrupt, all the unrighteous. This is a final decreation and recreation where sin can't pass through. There's a better judgment, a greater judgment that is coming. The only way to be kept alive through that judgment of fiery death is to be found with the one who passes through, and that's Jesus Christ, the better Noah. And just as this verse also mentions the ark, we're reminded that Christ himself also, on our behalf, passed through the waters of judgment. Through his death on a cross, Christ has secured eternally safe passage for us through judgment unto eternal life. And as Christians, when, we're, when we look at this passage, we see Christ everywhere. He's in here. And there's a, there's a deep message for Christians, even today in this passage. As we said in the beginning, God is covenantally faithful and he keeps the righteous alive. We know that God's covenantal faithfulness means that he judges corruption with death and rewards the righteous with life. And we saw that the ark, which is the vessel of life, prefigures Christ, who alone carries us through death to life. And we saw that Noah prefigures Christ and that the only, only those that are found with him are saved from the eternal and, and, and everlasting final judgment. And we know this, that the God who is covenantally faithful keeps the righteous alive. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, be, be comforted that you are in the ark which protects your life from the corruption of the world. You are found with Christ who alone grants you access to the eternal and everlasting life through the final judgment of fire. We must not overlook the tremendous comfort that this passage gives 
to those who have the faith of Noah. But if you don't have the faith of Noah, these benefits are open to you through faith. Come and find life in Jesus Christ alone. Put your faith in Christ. Enter the ark. Be found with him. Right now, all you have is death, and I'm offering you life through faith in Christ. That is the invitation for those who do not know Christ this morning. So I pray that that we may all be found safely secure in the vessel of life with the man of of, of life, who is Jesus Christ, the Savior, who passed through the judgment of death to carry us to life on the other side. Let's pray. Holy Father, I ask that you help us to see the, the greatness and the glory of our Savior Christ who has secured for us passage to, to glorious everlasting life and, and protection from the judgment of, of death. Help us to see you as glorious, the, the just and the merciful and gracious one. Help us this morning to, um, by your spirit, fan our affections and our loves for you, seeing that you are the God above all things who creates and can decreate. Help us to see your power and your might and your glory, but also your, your kind-heartedness in, in allowing and giving everlasting life to those you've made righteous. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.